Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome, uh, David, uh, to our 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Uh, great to see you today. Um, how are you? Good? All good. Thanks, uh, Dudley. Very nice to meet you. And um, yeah. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure the audience will absolutely love your, love what you got to share and, uh, and so on. And I want to, I want to maybe just start this, this podcast slightly, slightly differently. And, and because I normally do a, a quick intro, but, um, I think from your background and from where, where you come, I, I maybe give us your intro and then I'm going to go back into your LinkedIn uh, uh, profile and I'm going to then sort of pick out a few of the of the key things I think but essentially you're managing partner at an, an M&A advisory and I'm then going to leave it yeah. there and I'm going to say tell us a bit more about where you're at right now and uh, how did you get into it certainly certainly so yes we're managing partner of um, uh, as the name suggests on the tip we're an M&A advisory firm we are based in central London, just outside St. Catherine's Dock and uh, about us. So we are a sector-specific M&A firm. So we deal in the marketing communications and MarTech sectors, um, and we, which essentially we have a people heritage. So we have, um, we, we, uh, a lot of the businesses we sell have a, a, a serious people component to them so we have a particular way of doing our deals which i'll come on to a bit later and we're um size and geography agnostic so we cover many sizes of deal in that sector so probably anything from an ebitda from three hundred thousand pounds all the way through to about three million pounds and uh so, and as i say we're size agnostic and geography agnostic and so we work all over the world for various businesses. About 90% is on the sell side because that's where we feel we can add the most value. Um, and 10% is we work for buyers. Usually it's a very sort of very specific brief, uh, maybe for buyers who haven't worked before, who haven't bought before. Yeah, so I think I think that 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 makes it incredibly interesting, David. And I think I think from a from a slightly different type of guest that we normally have, we often have uh, M&A uh, uh, post-merger or post-integration practitioners that focus a lot, lot more of their time and energy on that end. What's really interesting, and two key things sort of come to mind when 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 I listen to you, and after we had a chat yesterday as well, um, two key things. One is 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 you help a lot of sell-side uh, businesses, and the other the other aspect, and I think that 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 probably complicates life a little bit more is is the fact that these are people-based businesses yeah um and and we're not looking at machinery equipment we're not looking at at any of those type of things and and often uh people-based businesses have got a lot to do with talent talent management i mean this is the that's the new word um people use or the word people use around what people are in terms of bringing on talent because 
talent makes a difference between a business that works and one that doesn't. And often business uh, businesses based on people are, are often very difficult to systemize because you have to rely so heavily on the talent within the business. Mm-hmm. Now you go in on a sell side, you try to value it and you try to think about what happens post uh, acquisition, what happens to the deal, what happens uh, to the people, the entity, and then because you sell side, and you're doing deal closing and so on. Tell us a little bit about that dynamic around people-based businesses, but also probably focusing on on the sell-side dynamic in terms of what you look at, uh, because you're pitching businesses, essentially. I mean, you're selling businesses. So, So the buyers are going to be asking questions such as, tell me more about what makes that business valuable, and the people, will they stay? <laughs> I suppose those are some of the key questions. So tell us a bit more about that dynamic. Yeah, a- absolutely. Well, it's an, uh, the marketing comms is a, is a very interesting industry in that generally it, it's a business that the, the owners of Marcom's businesses are very passionate about their businesses. And it's, and it's not a business that's easily handed over to their children because it's a very full-on type of industry. So generally the sellers are ultimately looking to sell. And also you've got a whole myriad of buyers out there that are looking to buy businesses because business, uh, other marketing communications businesses are looking to add a, a new skill set, uh, or a new geography or a new top technology onto their business, uh, in order to wrap themselves more closely around their clients. So there's a sort of a, quite a, a, a lot of supply and demand in some ways for this sort of industry. Um, and I, I guess the buyers, what they're looking for, as well as looking for a skill set that suits their business. And, and in many ways, buyers strategy in this industry is driven by opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, a buyer comes, we present an interesting opportunity to a, to a buyer and they may not have thought about doing this as part of their strategy, but they think actually this could be a worthwhile acquisition. This would make a difference to our lives, our clients' lives. So that that's that's generally the dynamic. And and what they'll then be looking for um, is to say, great, that's the skill set we want, but is the, how robust is this business? So they'll look at things perhaps very similar to the things they look in at. Perhaps a more normal business, such as um, have they got a second tier management team? Um, do they have too much reliance on one client? Uh, have they got, got strong systems and procedures in place? And are they making sufficient profit margins? And have they done that on a consistent basis? And, and have their clients stayed with them for a number of years? Do they have that sort of track record with their clients? So they look at all those things to determine the robustness of the business. Yeah, and, and if I if I think I mean if I look at your 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 profile, very interesting. You you you're a you're a, you're a fellow of the Association of uh, uh, Certified Accountants or Chartered Certified Accountants, yeah, the FCCA, as well as a, the Chartered Institute of Marketing. I mean, that is probably two polar opposites. Yeah, conflicts get you, Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how that started. I mean, I think in, in when I started quite a long time ago in business, I 
on leaving school, I wanted to work in business. That was my ambition. And, um, I think it was my father suggested to me that, oh, a lot of people, the, the people that run business these days are the accountants. So that got me interested in becoming an accountant. Now I'm not sure that I was uh, an out and out accountant. Naturally, I was very interested in the wider business subject, not just accounting. So as my career developed, um, I joined a, a great, a large industrial company on their training scheme and qualified as an accountant. And, uh, as my career developed, I, I felt that I was lacking in marketing skills and, and in those days, they, MBAs were just starting to come out where, where there are more of a generous qualification, but as I had a pretty good financial background, I, I just added on the marketing and, and one of the jobs that I had, I had a lot of international jobs and one of the jobs I had, I was also responsible, uh, I had more of a commercial role responsible for the marketing, customer service and those sorts of things as well, as well as the numbers. So that, that's how that happened. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And then, and then you get involved in a people business, which is again, I would say a third, third layer, although they are marketing sort of agencies or the MarTech environment, um, you're dealing a lot with people and, and, and the way people think and, and all the behavioral psychology, if you, if you like which again is, is again, not maybe part of the formal education, but part of probably real life and, and, and going through the normal, I would say the learning curves we go through as we build our careers. If I come back then to the, uh, to, to the kind of, uh, companies and, and so on, you talk, you talk about uh, cultural and business fit to maximize value. Um, sort of marketing communications, digital and martech martech sectors, and mm. and and yeah. So you part of the things that you were saying were uh, when businesses are being uh, sold or bought, and you think about uh, the questions that the buyers ask, and that 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 often they say, "Oh, that's a great idea to bring in a, maybe a marketing business into our business to to further grow our." teams and so on. So the acquisitions, um, appear to be, and the integrations appear to be, uh, sometimes around bringing in, uh, buying in the talent and maybe sometimes customers. I mean, if that's their business, so they're really a MarTech business and, and they're adding on to that, but maybe buying in, um, the talent as opposed to buying in, um, a customer base and so on. Tell us yeah. if, if, that, if that's the kind of thing that, that, that happens from time to time. Yes. I mean, that's very much the case, particularly with some of the smaller deals where, as I say, I think buyers are always looking out for a new skill set, a new technology or a new geography to, in order to wrap themselves more closely to their own clients. And, um, so they may well buy perhaps a smaller business that does data or it might do digital if they're a PR consultancy, for example, or, um, more of an integrated marketing business. If they, if it, it, depending on their own skill sets, they'll find something complementary. So absolutely. Uh, but the, the nice thing about buying those skill sets with buying smaller agency is that those guys will, that agency will have its own revenue stream and have its own clients because. The only way you can really prove that skill set, the quality of that skill set, is to have a demonstrate uh, demonstrate that you've got um, good financial um, income derived from that skill set through clients. So yeah, so they they're often complete businesses. You're not just buying the skill set. 
in terms of what you're va- what you're valuing and buying. But uh, essentially, what the buyer then can do is take that skill set and leverage it to its own clients and, and really up the up the revenue. Yeah, I, I think there's a trend, and maybe you can you can confirm or uh, or, or not confirm. Um, there's a trend in trying to to get hold of businesses, buy businesses, buy entities that have got recurring revenues. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if there's a if if there's a tech component to it, and there's a a contract involved where or a service level agreement. Or the the kind of uh, technology that the smart tech or, or or these agencies and that if they sell that as part of their service pack or service stack, if you like, mm-hmm. um, how much does uh, I mean if you look if and, and I suppose it comes from the valuation side of things. If if I'm looking at a business, a business like a people business is only as good as the current contract that they're busy servicing. If they've got a large number of recurring um, uh, customers that are buying from them regularly and they're on sort of, uh, let's call it maintenance-based um, contracts or, or arrangements as opposed to these one-off projects. And yeah. often people businesses are one-off project-based. So, they, so their incomes, sort of the feast and famine, if you like, they, you know, they might have a great project, do incredibly well, and then drop. Yep. Then it's all about how good are they at, at marketing themselves? Because if if they're not selling their own projects and their own client relationships, you know, it doesn't matter how good they are at delivering marketing. How good are, are they at generating new work? And I and just tell us a bit about that dynamic. So when a buyer comes in and says, "Look, we need a dish. We would like to bring in this entity." Hmm. Um, it's not just past financials. I'm sure it's got a lot to do with the makeup of a of, of a of a people-based business. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the buyer will be very, very interested. I mean, as I say, they, they will look at the, the skill set that's offered that, but, and, and then try and understand the quality of the revenue stream. So if they've got, um, you know, a, a client perhaps more than 20, 25% of their, of the revenue, that's, that's become a little bit more risky to them. So that the value might be affected by that. So if you're a seller of a business, it's best to try and keep your, the number of your clients, you know, to have a, a, a fairly equal spread, um, for a number of reasons when you sell, but also when you're an ongoing business, if you lose a very chunky client, it's going to affect your business. You might be facing the situation of having to lay off staff or making losses for a while. So. That, that, that's, that's really important. So buyers will definitely look at the quality of that revenue stream, whether it's, and also sometimes retain clients, maybe have a, a little bit of a premium if, but what they will look at is they'll go back several years, to see how long that, um, that agency has, has kept its clients for, uh, which is probably more important than written contracts. So if they've worked with a business for three or four years. Like as chances are, they'll be working with them in future for another three or four. Yeah, and and if you put your um, if you put your counting hat on, um, if often when I see the financials of of uh, of, of service based businesses or or let's say people based businesses, the 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 difficulty for them is to do a, a, a proper gross margin. Uh, uh, on their <laughs> on their PNL on their 
on the income statement or profit and loss. And, and because many, many of the times the people inside the entity sit below the GP line. So then they yeah. en end up having very, very high gross margins. And yeah. so, you know, and, and they're sitting at 80% or something like that. And, and that, and that's, that's not realistic because it's a people-based business. I mean, yeah. Using your and and this is I, I said I'm going to throw a curveball in and maybe I think this is this is it, David. But mm -hmm. you know, if you if you are busy advising a people based business and they and I've seen so many of them, uh, salaries and and people uh, expenses sit below the GP line, and and uh, I don't know maybe something small like I don't know office supplies or I don't know whatever sits above. Yeah, and they sit these massive margins. And say, oh, but this is a high margin business, and in fact, it's not. Yeah, and um, the difficulty is, how do you differentiate between internal functions of people performing internal functions and people performing client based functions, which is actually a cost of sale? So now, uh, I mean, just just yeah. just tell us a bit about that. You know, the kind of complexity. Yeah, I mean, that there's a fairly. The industry is, is probably growing up a little bit um, on on that now uh, more than it was, and um, really you could say you could argue that the turnover is irrelevant. And what what people look for in all marketing comes businesses is what's called fee income equivalent. So that is um, your turnover less your bought in costs. So if if you're a a media business, for example, that buys and sells media spots and your margin between buying and selling is very small, um, your gross profit may only, effective gross profit may be effectively only five or 10%. If you're a PR consultancy that sells time for a lot of the time, your, your fee income is going to be almost a hundred percent of your turnover. You can compare the two so that the gross profit in a media company will be equivalent to the uh, fee income in a part of, in a PR consultancy. So you're comparing fee income equivalents all the time. And then what to do with people, uh, the people cost? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right, Dudley. They do go as an overhead. Mm -hmm. And so the answer there really, uh, and, and I think financial controls in an agency, in the agency consulting world have improved you know, tremendously over the years. So basically the way people control that is by saying that there should be a percentage of revenue or percentage of fee income equivalent that those overheads should represent, which is around about 50%. So you're saying, right, all my, if I add all my staff costs up, I should on a year on year basis come in with about 50% of my, my fee income. And then you allow about 30% for other overheads. And then the remaining 20 uh, versus fee income is your, is your net margin. So instead of talking about turnover, it's all about fee income or, or gross profit now. And, and everything's in relation to that. Yeah, it, it, it becomes quite difficult because then you start using almost a standard costing model as opposed to uh, you almost a rule of thumb as in 50% should go there and 50% should sit over there kind of thing. Yeah, I think you <clears throat> it does generally follow that. Yeah. In broad terms, you, that's what we do. Yeah. 
exactly. Yeah, to, to, just to have some kind of benchmark to start. I think I think accounting yeah. firms is one third is 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 staff, uh, one third is overhead, and one third is profit for the partner, or so, something like that. I think they yeah. try to do a one third, one third, one third split. So I was just thinking about the professional services and the people-based business. If it's a 50% split, so if I take my salary bill, 50% theoretically is for client work, 50% is for internal, um, but it's not actually the case, but it, I, I, I'm sure it's horses for courses. When you go and actually look at the, the financials, you then try and unpick that. Uh, tell us more you know, what that looks like. Yes, I mean, it's an interesting one. Um, Generally, there's a number of things. Number one, agencies will normally, um, I think unlike an accounting firm slightly, I mean, an accounting firm, uh, it has a probably a slightly more monopolistic position with their clients. So they can, um, you know, they're, 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 there's not an almost a market rate for what they charge them. They can actually just cost it up to make sure that they're, they're covered, as you said, a third, a third, a third. I, I think what in a marketing industry, it can be more, it's quite competitive. Um, and what they will end do, then do is individual client profitability for each client. So they will have timesheets and they'll measure the cost against the, against the revenue from each client. And each one should be making um, a decent margin and the company overall should be making about 20%. But there's often a little bit of a variation between how much you make on each client. You know, one client might be making 25, another might be making only 15. And, and when they get too low, the, the agency has to make that difficult decision to say, do we, should, should we be carrying on with this client? <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah, I think sometimes margins can be squeezed in a, in a highly competitive environment um, and you end up selling your services for less and less and and obviously it's a diminishing return because now you can't again pay your people uh well you can't do bonuses that sort of thing so now, right. now now you're doing sell side um i think you said the bulk of your work about 90 percent of your work yes about 90 percent of our work is sell side yeah absolutely yeah yeah that's where we add most of the value um, because generally sellers of businesses are selling for the first time, you know, that's the only time they sell their business. So you're able to transfer the skill sets that they need to sell it. Plus we've got, you know, we do this all the time. We're sector specific. So we've got a very strong market knowledge of who the buyers are, um, and what they're potentially looking for. So, so that's so, so run us through that first conversation. So I pick up the phone and say, uh, David, you know what? I've got a, a marketing or a, you know, some agency, and uh, I'm, I want to go to market. I'm, I'm tired. I want. I just want to finish. I need to hand it off to someone else. What? Yeah. What? What's the conversation? I mean, tell us a, a broad outline of of some of those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, it, it, it's uh, sometimes people ring me up and they say, uh, you know, when should I sell? And uh, the, 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 often the answer I give to them because it's, it's a people business is when you want to sell. Cause I think there's nothing worse when somebody is, is tired in a business and really does want to move on that they're actually still trying to struggle away with their business. They, they'll lose that passion for it, which is, which is so important. But if someone calls for the first time 
and wants to talk about their business. And we, we, we have many of these conversations at, at various stages of, of business life. Um, it, you know, there, and there's many, many reasons to sell. I mean, some people want to sell because as you mentioned, they've got to pretty close to retirement age and they're thinking of winding down or they're, um, a, a younger business that what, what we say is, is looking to play on a bigger stage. And, uh, so they might need a particular skill set themselves, uh, and they're unable to buy it, but you know, for instance, they're, they've grown up quite quickly and they've started to win international clients. And one of their international clients says, look, I can give you a lot more business if you had a New York office and were part of someone bigger. So that, that's a kind of a reason to, to join someone bigger. So we have that conversation. Uh, and also we have a conversation around preparing their business for sale, you know, looking at, at a number of factors. And we do a thing called a strategic review with them, which looks at their financial systems, which looks at their quality of their client relationships, their, the, the quality of the management team, all of these things, they're, they're the ambitions of, of the people in the business, um, and, and assess all of that and, and determine what needs to change to put them in the optimum position to sell and also give them a timing on when they, when they should sell. So, uh, yeah, so we do that for them, maybe a year, maybe two years, even more before they actually push the button on selling. Yeah. So it's quite a process and, and, and I'm, I'm imagining and, and, uh, that the relationship that you build with the sellers over that time as you get to know them pretty pretty well I'm, I'm i'm guessing in this whole um information gathering getting them ready for sale understanding the strategic outcomes they're looking for etc i i'm sure you get quite close to a lot of your your clients yes indeed i mean if we do one of these strategic reviews which we do as i say a, little, a, a number of years before sale we get to know their business quite well and we're able to um you know, that we sit down with the management team and, and understand what their personal aims and objectives are. So not under, not only do we understand the foibles of the business, but also say the, the foibles of the, of the people in it. And, and we're often looking to, you know, once we put our report out, we're aiming to, to correct, um, a lot of the business issues there so that it's, um, you know, that anything that a buyer might be. You know, sort of, we, we're trying to emphasize the strengths and, and remove the weaknesses of the business. Um, so that, uh, you know, that it, yeah. it would sell more easily and fit in with a buyer's business more easily. Yeah. Because you, you're the guy that's got to go out and, and answer all those uncomfortable questions. So you, you might as well address them, uh, some of the issues that can be addressed rather address them in advance because. When you get to negotiating or negotiating on behalf, or at least presenting, um, you, you'd like a lot of those to be gone. Uh, or, yes. And, and, and usually you can get them to go, you know, there's no question. The lovely thing about this industry is often addressing the issues can be quite a quick process. You know, it could be, you could sort of turn a business around in a year and, and, and the, and the strategic review that we do for businesses, the interesting thing is you, you don't necessarily have to sell after you've, after we've done that review, it will make the business a stronger business anyway. Um, I mean, we are mainly an executional M&A firm. We're not a consulting firm, but we do a small amount of consulting. And when we do that for people, generally they have a, a much more robust business for themselves. Um, 
at the end of that process. So, so let let's let's turn this now into into um, the uh, you've got everything ready. Tell us about the first conversation or first few conversations. How do you frame? You've got all your homework done. You've you've done all the work you've done for a year or two. You're ready to take it to market. Um, tell us a bit about that process. What do you what do you do? How, how do you get people interested? Once you're in front of them, what that conversation look like? Uh, and to get obviously to get them all excited about what's potential. Um, yeah. Give us a little bit about that that, that, that background. Yes. Well, once we we put all the information together, um, we we have. We obviously we're out in the market all the time as a firm, and we we speak, speak with a huge number of buyers um, worldwide on a regular basis to get to understand the types of business they're looking for. We get to understand trends in the industry, and so we know a lot of people that might be interested in, um, or certainly would be interested in buying our clients' business. But also, that still leaves a lot of. Um, a lot of potential buyers on the table. So we always do uh, quite a huge amount of bespoke research as well, um, targeting those people that, as well as people we know might be interested, those that we think might be interested. And we'll, we'll drop a line or we'll call the CEOs of those businesses and we'll send a summary, executive summary of our client to them. And uh, if they're interested, we get, appropriate NDA signed and tell them a little bit more about the business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You, you make it sound like it's easy, but it's, I'm sure it's, it's not an easy task to find the right, uh, uh let's call it portfolio type of buyers. Um, even though you're in the market, I'm sure that whole, uh, just making sure that you're in touch, getting in touch, opening up new conversations. Um, you make it sound as if it's easy, but I, I, I've got my doubts. But I mean, tell us, is it easy? <laughs> um, I, I suppose if it was easy, Tesco would be doing it. But so it, it probably it's probably not so easy. But we are pretty successful in the number of deals we put away. Um, I, I think we have a, a very very high percentage of deals that we we finalise for our for our clients, and. Uh, I think it's partly being specialist that, and regularly talking, you know, being out in the marketplace, um, helps. Um, we have a particular process, um, to ensure that the, the crucial elements in a deal, we find that there's, there should be sort of, I suppose, three crucial elements in any Marcom's deal, um, has to be achieved, uh, which also enables the, you know, the, the client to make our clients to make sure they get the best, the best deal. Uh, and I say that those three elements and, and those three elements really, I think you could probably apply to any business, but it's particularly being brought up in the, in the people business area because it's so crucial. But I, I, I think there are a number of other non people business acquisitions that could be, that could learn from it as well. And, um, you know, uh, and those elements are, um, you have to have chemistry between the parties. So on the first meeting, if you feel comfortable with the potential buyer, then that, that's a, a certainly a good tick in the box because that will help you. Um, if you, if you've got a good chemistry and a good rapport, the chances are when you, um, things get a little bit more difficult during these, perhaps the earn out phase of the deal, 
um, you know, you've got a good working relation, potentially have a good working relationship with them. Whereas if you sit in a room with somebody for the first time and you just think, I really don't like this person, I don't think I can trust them. You'll probably be right. So, um, it's best to avoid that. Um, the, the second thing we look for is a cultural fit, um, between the business. So a business culture and companies can have a different, you know, it could be a, a, a UK company buying in Japan and okay, a different national culture, but a business culture could be the same. And, and, and I think the best way of describing a, a business culture is, is the way we do things around here. And if, if the two businesses have a similar style of working, that when, once they start working on projects together post deal, they'll get each other and understand, um, how they can work. You know, if one company's, for example, very bureaucratic, the other's very entrepreneurial, they'll have problems post post deal. So that's what we look for is a sound cultural fit. And, and the final thing we look for is an out, what's called an outstanding business proposition. So that if the two companies get together, there should be something that really drives value between the two. So they should be very, um, uh, you know, there should be a number of synergies. So a bit like the example I gave where, um, one business is looking for a, a buyer with a U.S. office and, and the U.S. office might be, um, you know, uh, having perhaps problems or something like that for the buyer. So therefore it revit revitalize their U.S. office and give the buyer just the same thing, a very strong U.S. office potentially. And, and, uh, that, that's what you call an outstanding business proposition really and truly. So if we have all of those elements and the nice thing about the, uh, the, the, that business proposition, it will enable if there is any earnout attached to the deal or incentive payments, it will help the buyer, the, sorry, the seller get through those with ease. It will give them kind of a following wind as it were to, um, to, uh, get through those earnout and maximize out on those earnout payments. Yeah, and, and I want to I want us to touch on that earnout element, but I want to just go one one step back because I'm sure. I'm just thinking if if I'm a I'm a buyer, let's say, and I'm I, I'd I'd like to 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 look at um, a an entity and 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 you give me a phone call and it's like okay, well, um, I'm David. I've got this. I've got you know I've got this kind of entity and so on. One of the things that come up in, in, in my mind is, is how do I know I can bring these people into my business? So if, if I had to have, let's say I've, I've never bought a business before, um, uh, or I've never engaged with this type of advisory before, yeah. what would be sort of the top two or three, four questions that would be critical for, to give me that sort of comfort that I'm, that I'm doing the right thing? Uh, you know, from a buyer perspective, you know, and, and in other words, what are the objections you get uh, in that space? And, and what are the, you know, what's going on in my mind as a buyer when you are talking to me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we often do work for buyers of businesses and it's, I suppose it's first of all, understanding what they are looking for ideally um, to improve their business. Um you know, you know, is, is that what sort of skill set, what sort of geography, um, they're looking for. I mean, I was working, um, about a year ago on a, for a Middle Eastern business who specialized in financial technology and they were very specific in their, uh, needs. They wanted, because London is such, um, a strong financial hub, 
they wanted to find a digital agency in London that specialized in the financial services industry. So that was quite a, you know, a clear brief on, on looking for, um, those sorts of businesses. So we, we got our research team to look at those and we interviewed the various, um, potential sellers of their businesses, um, about their capabilities, about their performance, um, you know, financial performance, whether they were sort of willing sellers, um, because not, not always, uh, you don't always get willing sellers. Some, some people talk to you, but they're not, not sort of willing sellers. And, um, and, 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 and we met them first, we get some information on their business, talk to our clients about that. And then we introduce them to our clients and, and they will also part, you know, take those tests of chemistry um, culture and, and business proposition to see if that's, that's, um, a good, a good deal. Yeah. And, and I would, I would imagine, and I'm just going to throw this out there that, that most of these types of, um, businesses that are people led are often, uh, the, the owner, founder, manager, I mean, that's sort of often one or two, three people, um, and they are the core skill set. And then they would have, uh, and I, mean, I call this the the chief many warriors concept of running a business. Yeah. Um, and often they don't necessarily have this layer of management in place. So if you yeah. if you take the main one or two, three people out, all of a sudden you've just got lots of helpers and no no chiefs. You know, yeah. There's nothing. So that dynamic is is is. I think uh, probably an Achilles heel for a lot of people-based business. Yeah, it, it can be, uh, it, absolutely. And I, and I think it's one of the top um, Achilles heel that, that uh, make, makes selling a business quite difficult in, in our industry. But that, that's one of the things we bring out, um, you know, earlier on um, in, in, if we do a strategic view of the business, we definitely encourage sellers of businesses to have a second tier management team to start to develop a second tier management team. And very often, you know, that could be done taking people that you already have in the business and, and giving them more responsibility rather than, you know, probably the hardest thing in the world to go and do is actually go and do a senior, a senior level, level hire. I've probably seen more disasters where people do that. They, they sort of bring someone in from, who's an industry heavyweight from somewhere else in the industry and it, and it just doesn't work. Um, so, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's, I'd say it's one of these processes that's more of a longer term process and, and increasingly, you know, you're, you're getting books in the, you know, about business and, and that's what they're encouraging people to do. They're saying, you know, if you want to sell your business, if you want to be successful, you've got to start working on the business rather than in it. And I think that's, it's a fairly good mantra. Um, we had a, a deal, um, probably six to nine months ago, um, a social media business run by a lady called Jodie Cook. And, uh, it wasn't a huge business, but, uh, she was a very determined, uh, lady and she, it was her, she made it her intention to sell the business and she didn't want an earn out. She wanted a straight uh, deal and she wanted to leave, which is extremely unusual in our industry. And, and diligently she was able to, um, uh, 
develop a, a second tier management team, a really confident second tier management team. And all the processes in the business were complete, were written down very, very clearly by, you know, everybody wrote down there the way everything worked. So basically it was uh, a complete, uh, the, the book was, they had the manual for the business and uh, that business was in fact, and I think there's a link on my website to um, a, a talk given by Jodie Cook on, on how she managed to sell her a business without an earnout, which she, she succeeded in doing, which was uh, quite impressive. It's it's highly un, un, unusual, and that and that's why I thought let let let's wait a bit before we go into the earnout concept because yeah, people based business is all about making sure you hold on to the people um, post acquisition, and because yeah. I mean, I, the, the the show is about uh, post acquisition or post merger integration. So, so this is where I want to get that sort of segue. Now we've we've spoken a lot about the sort of that preparing and doing negotiations and the culture and all that. Yeah. But deal structure surely has a massive impact in the yeah. integration side of things. So that the ways that the deal has been structured. Um, maybe share some of your thoughts around the the dynamic between that deal structure and then what happens post deal and that whole integration process and how much involvement you have in that. Yes, certainly. Well, uh, I mean, earnouts are, are very popular in the industry. They always have been, and they're, they're a way to transition, um, you know, one business into another. The, the interesting thing about earnouts that not everybody knows is that businesses are legally ring fenced when that, when the earnout takes place. So if you sell your business to, you know, WPP or, or a buyer, they will, um, you, you will work in your business for a two year earnout period. And there is nothing they can do to, uh, without your permission to affect your business. So they can't give you staff that you don't want. They can't get you to work on clients that you might not want. So it's, the earnout is not a hugely popular uh, way of doing deals, and and as I say, it's not the best way to integrate a business because if it's a profit earnout, that is, because really the business is is sort of in limbo for two years until the earnout's over, and then you've got the danger of the founder leaving, um, and uh, you know that the that the integration not being success. So increasing, there's a trend to try and either limit the earnout to the top line of the business. So the people will say, well, what we'll do is we'll incentivize you on your revenue line rather than your profit line, which at least enables the, the uh, buyer to integrate the business as far as accounting and HR and all of the other synergistic benefits and property and all of those things, which makes, makes it easier. So that, that's, that's often... A, a good move or sometimes now again increasingly buyers are saying well what we'll do is we'll give you 60 percent of your current value in cash and we'll give you 40 percent sometimes less of our shares um so it's a cash and shares deal and uh and that way they can start integrating the business straight away so you haven't got this divisive burnout that's that's going on and, um, I've seen that, you know, be quite successful. It can be a bit of a risk for buyers to take equity that they, they don't know too much about, but, but it's just a question of, uh, 
you know, it's one of those things you have to look at, look at it and uh, value it on its individual, on each individual case. But, um, where we've done that, I had, a, um, you know, several businesses and they've often done, they've, they've often made much more money on the sale of the final 40%, you know, sometimes twice, three times as much as they, they got for the original 60%, which is, uh, so it's, it can be quite lucrative. Yeah, and and I'm I'm in total agreement because uh, with that concept of of top line um, uh, focus as opposed to bottom line focus, to, uh, bottom line focus means is means that you have to have joint decisions in terms of how you're changing the expense structure and the overhead structure and and any any things. I mean, there there might be a big need to add additional marketing budget to increase the customer base. But the whoever the seller uh, was or is would say no. I, I'm not prepared to to take a hit on my two year earnout. Um, and, yeah. But the business needs it. But now you're in conflict. And if you're just on the top line, then then that could even be encouraging them to have more expense on marketing to generate more customers. Yeah, so that's, that's right. So so I suppose that's definitely a better uh, a model. But the earnout uh, it is quite key the other thing that 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 i'm seeing that's busy happening and, and maybe you could just share what's happening in your space is is this new concept of of having multiple exits in other words a seller um will build a business to a certain level exit a portion of it but hold on to a certain number of shares again um joining the other entity or, or going whatever the strategic direction is Building that, whatever's left over in terms of shareholding, building that value up again, exiting again, but again, yeah. holding on to a percentage. But every time, let's call it the pie is getting bigger, but you earning you own less and less of it. Yeah. But every time you have another exit, and that's taking more and more money off the table. And 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 this is a concept that I'm 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 not seeing enough of I don't believe which I think would be very valuable for owners to stop <coughs> sorry thinking about the the only big asset they own besides their homes and that uh, or properties or whatever their portfolios but their only big asset in life is that one business and it's a single sale and it's almost like to start thinking about how can I harness or leverage this particular asset that I've built up to a certain point? I maybe can't take it any further. I've probably hit a ceiling. Do I plateau and sit there for the next 20 years? Um, I, I, I sometimes call it sort of one-year experience repeated 20 times. You know, you, you have that kind of concept where, where rather build, go three, five years, whatever it is, reach your limit, know what your limit is as a, as a seller, and then say, okay, how do I get in? How do I get myself ready, not just for exit, but how do I get myself ready to be integrated into the next business at exit? And it's maybe just one question further that's not being asked. So from a from an integration or a post acquisition or post merger integration point of view, I would love to see more um, sellers say. Um, no, I want to exit, but I want to be part of the new organization and I will, I'm actually integration ready, not just ready for sale. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I, I agree with you, uh, Dudley. I, I think that's a really good way of, of doing deals. And, and we've done several like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the area where you do that, I think in our industry, it's really important not to leave it. And for any business, it's not, it's really important not to leave it too late to sell. Because if you leave it too late, then you then you are looking for your exit and you have to sell the whole thing. But business is gentle. But, uh, but it can be highly lucrative for the seller and the buyer, really, to sell chunks. And buyers normally want 51% as a, as a going in position. So, but if you, if you really need those synergies, you can benefit uh, from all of those synergies and you keep 49%, which you'll sell at a later date. Sometimes that is when the buyer ultimately sells that you'll cash in. And when we've done those sorts of deals in the past, we did one in the North England recently, and it was very, very lucrative for the seller to, to do that. Um, and, uh, they, what they did, they started off with quite, you know, fairly smallish business, but that business, it was a sort of a strategic consulting business and, and they had to, they, they were asked by their clients all the time, but you know, with you, you've done some great strategy work for us but we need you to also oversee the implementation, um, and help us with the implementation. And they just didn't have the resources to do that. So they joined a bigger group that could do the implementation. They sold 51% of that with the remainder to be sold when the buyer ultimately sold. And they did extremely well on that, uh, on that final 49%. And, uh, and the, the nice thing about that, it's, it's probably got an advantage over where you're having the, um, where you're taking the seller's equity because always taking the seller's equity is a little bit of a risk, but by keeping 49% of your own equity means that you, you kind of know what it is. No, it's your business that you've, you've built up and, and therefore, um, it, it's, uh, you know, you, you're fairly, you're fairly safe with it. Yeah, I, and what I'm what I'm uh, starting to do, and and I'm I'm putting together a a, a course, and um, and this course is about you know post merger or post acquisition integration specialization, taking yeah. um the the body of knowledge, if you like, and 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 narrowing it down into an integration, um, but very focused on real life practical um applications. Yeah, I think where, where there's a big need, and 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 probably it's a it's uh, for a lot of people, it's it's probably a blind spot, in that, um, what did what can they be doing as business owners? And I think one of the key things they're really struggling with is that thing that you mentioned. Um, I, I need to work on my business and not in my business. And then when it comes to I need to get out of my business, that th those are probably not you know, that's probably not the right question. It's how do I go to the next level? So it's not, yeah. uh, I suppose scale up is, is, is a bit of a cliche these days. So uh, the, the term really is how do I go to the next level and, and keep growing my wealth and keep yeah. growing my revenue. And yeah. what is the, what's the best vehicle to get there? One of them is a partial exit, I think. But yeah. Partial exit and entry into something else. But there's no, there's nothing available out there which will train people or even put the question out there to say, you should be asking these questions of yourself and say, how do I get myself ready to go from 
um, let's call it bootstrap startup entrepreneur to a an entity that's turning uh, uh, two, three, five, ten million to becoming part of an entity that's a, that's turning a hundred million to become part of an entity that's turning five hundred million. You know, yeah. am, am I thinking like that as an entrepreneur, or am I just saying this is mine? I'm going to look after it. I'm going to sort of it's that whole sort of scarcity mentality. Yeah, yeah. No, but and that's a nice thing. It's that bigger opportunities. Yeah, it's a, it's it's definitely a great a great way of doing it. You're creating instead of an exit, you're really creating an exit strategy, uh, and you're able to you know it's going to help you build your business. Which could be so well. Creation strategy. It's huge. Absolutely. Yeah, you're definitely right. Um, as I say, where I've seen it in practice, it's uh, it's very very powerful, and and that's the sort of thing we address when we do the sort of strategic review of businesses. We look at what they need. And, um, you know, if the owner's not ready to sell yet, or he, he might say, well, look, I want 10 million pounds to, to retire. You say, right, well, you know, maybe the answer is to find, uh, that the buyer, the, the, the actual business itself needs, you know, some other skill set or something like that to help take it onto the next level. Then you find that what the answer to that is, could be selling a smaller portion of the business, sell some of the business, not all of it. Um, so yeah, that can work extremely well. Yeah, and I suppose everyone's got their own motivations and everybody's got their own view, but it's also it's it's how much you know um and what you've been exposed to. And 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 I've always been a big uh believer in sort of uh exposing yourself. It's, it's I suppose it's the difference between those people that uh travel as opposed to those people that that live in a village for their entire lives. You know, they they go to school, they they uh, work there, and they that's where they are. They never travel anywhere. But as soon as you travel and you open up your mind to what's happening out in the real world, and and or not real world, but in the broader world, I think the same thing happens with with business owners. It's it's get exposed, understand that there are other ways of doing that thing, and they're probably better questions to be asking. And guys like yourself, and I think uh, what's what's evident for me out of our out of our conversation today is that you those you, that's basically what you do uh, you know what, what what's very difficult i think from your point of view especially if you're acting a lot of sell side you know you it, the, the 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 danger is that you could be almost seen as if you're a broker but you're nowhere near a business broker no no, no it, 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 exactly. people not even in the scope yeah it's not yeah, even it's, in scope it's frustrating for me to be called a broker because you're absolutely right. Because a broker is, I think a broker has probably only motivation is to sell the business. Whereas I guess we are, we are two things, you know, one of the things is we are, we, we are able to advise on the deal itself, but also we're able to give business advice. So every client we take on, we view as a, a business challenge, not a, and uh, as well as a you know a corporate finance uh, client, it's it's a business challenge for us to help that client plow on a bigger stage. Whereas a broker and and we want to make sure the business goes to a, the right home um, that that helps them in the future. Uh, so yeah, a broker probably their own motive, but their motivation is to, is to sell the business and, and get a commission. And uh, that that's that's kind of uh, you just don't want to be labelled in that same 
same place. Yeah, look, every, everybody's got their space, but I think it's very clear to me your differentiator is strategic. It's, it's, it's probably having a fewer clients, but focusing more on, on the outcomes that they're looking to achieve. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and being more human and, and real about it than, than just a numbers game. And which, 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 yeah. which I, that's why I wanted you on the show today, because I think that comes out quite evidently for me. Uh, you know, having dealt in this space probably for 25, 30 years now, it's, it's very clear when, when you get that sort of numbers game mentality, I might as well just push out a whole lot of information, memoranda out there, uh, and, and do the auction. So sort of just throw it out there and hope someone will buy it. Yeah. You do a lot more of a focused type of, uh, engagement. You, you really look after your clients and you do go a journey one or two years. I was quite, quite, quite surprised and, and, and very glad to hear that you do go one, two, three years to assist them. Uh, but yeah. not only that is, is to put them in front of the right buyers to get those negotiations going and to think about what happens to them afterwards. Yes. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. And, and as I say, they've got to have that outstanding proposition and, load, and the fit, otherwise the deal won't won't work and we want our clients deal to work you know we 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 feel the pain if anything ever goes wrong it, we feel the pain ourselves too which is probably slightly different to a to a brokerage type business but um yeah <laughs> yeah it's fascinating i want to i'm just going to come into we come into the end of the hour we've got about three odd minutes left and i thought maybe we just just finish off and on a little bit about the company yourself sort of how do you keep work-life balance if there is such a thing uh and where are you going with the business because if i if i look you you talk about being a managing partner uh founder and managing partner of the m a advisory so clearly you've got a vision you've got a purpose and you've got sort of a and i think you mentioned mantras earlier but just tell us a little bit about you where you're going and how people can get a hold of you if they ever need to have a chat about the things that you offer yes certainly well, um, in terms of what we offer, uh, we've got our website, which is mandadvisory.com and, uh, I'm, uh, my email address is David B at mandadvisory.com. All our details are on the, uh, the website. So feel free if anybody would like a, like a chat, um, more, we're very, very happy just to, just to talk to people and see if we can offer you know, some general advice, uh, point people in the right direction. So we'd certainly welcome, um, calls. We're uh, a central London based firm. Uh, we are part of a, a wider network, uh, which is an independent network, which gives us some global, global cover coverage. And, um, we're based uh, near St. Catherine's dock in, in E1. And there's a team of about six of us. Uh, we've been going about 11 or 12 years. Um, work-life balance. That's an interesting one. I, I think the, the probably thing that we have done, um, which is probably that might interest, um, some, your budding entrepreneurs out there, which is, which is quite different. When I set the business up 11, about 11 or so years ago, um, I had in mind, there was two things really. I had in mind the, the sort of the green issues, the planet saving type thing, and also the sort of, I'd worked in London and, and, and I remembered all the disruptions to business. Um, you know, the, the train strikes, the terrorist attacks and all of those things. So when I set the business up, I, I kind of had a, a rule in my mind 
um, at the time, which I said, I only want to employ people that can walk to work. So that's what we did. We, we basically, um, you know, in London, there's a huge talent pool of people who live in London. You know, they live in Canary Wharfs, they live in Wapping and uh, places like around London. And we, we only advertise locally. We only recruited local people and, and I think work-life balance, it's been fantastic, you know, because, uh, you know, my number two, she's ex Morgan Stanley. Um, and one of the reasons she needs to be, um, local was she had to keep an eye on her, uh, mother and actually and my colleague Michelle has been with us, you know, for the whole, for the whole time. And I, and I think commuting is a, a huge, um, underrated strain on people, um, the stress of it all. It's easy when it goes well, but when it doesn't go so well, it's, it's, it's really, uh, really annoying. So I think that's, that's, and, and we're very lucky because it enabled us by social distancing in the office, didn't have to use public transport. We were able to get through the pandemic and have our best year during COVID. So, you know, maybe as a structure of businesses, maybe people might want to think about that because that that's, I think in terms of work-life balance, that's one of the things as a, as a business, we've tried to, try to encourage. It gets more and more difficult to always find people locally, but that's our, our principle. Well, I mean, and, and you run a people business, don't you? And uh, right. that's, that's yeah. how we, how we started. David, there's a, there's a question that that's just popped up and, uh, and there are other comments on that, but there's a question I, I want to pose. I want to throw it to you. And then, sure. um, for my office hours, I'll continue the, um, I, I do office hours every Friday at, uh, at, at 9am, um, for all PMI, M and, uh, type of questions and also people running professional services businesses. Um, yeah. I also cover uh, some of the answers on this question now, but but specifically for yourself, it's it's by uh, Ross uh, Churchill. He says, "Thank you, Dudley and David, for the conversation on on, on PMI, which is the post merger integration. Uh, are there dedicated internal systems that companies use to support the overall PMI strategy? Can you think of anything like that? Can you share? Can you help uh, Ross uh, on on your answer?" Yeah, I, I, I wish I could, Ross. I mean, we keep in touch with our clients um, on a regular basis. I think you'll probably find the bigger buyers uh, have very, very uh, bespoke systems. I mean, there, there's a, it's really important um, to have strong post-merger integration skills as a company, you know, M&A skills and post-merger skills, because it makes a huge difference to every acquisition that that you make now if there if there's any bespoke software i don't know a lot of companies will keep those sort of that sort of skill set and if they've developed any technology to do that probably in-house and i don't know of any generic software um that um that 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 fulfills that purpose but it's a, it's a very interesting question and, and it's probably a, there's probably some uh, and an excellent business proposition for somebody to go and create such a thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, abs absolutely. I, I think you feel badly. Do you do you know of any? I I I don't, as I say, but but I I know that the skill sets needed are, you know, really important. Yeah, yeah. So so we we've actually got blueprints and models. Um, and, and one of the one of the things I'm actually kickstarting a brand new training course. Um It'll be live and free for everyone uh, starting this Friday at 11 a.m. 
where I start rolling out and, and, and talking about um, these internal systems and blueprints and, and processes and, and, and even things um, that are people-related. Again, it's about people, but the, how to address culture around internal systems that companies use to support the overall PMI strategies. And, and it's, it's what you do before, during, and after it's when do you start your, your, your building up your PMI, uh, your strategy? What do you use? Is it appropriate for the type of industry? Um, and then there's other things like communication and other strategies. HR, what can, you, what can you do in terms of day one planning, in terms of after post acquisition? Um, what can you do in the first 100 odd days? And that's why this podcast is 100 days and beyond. Yeah. And then going forward, um, what happens longer term? You know, how quickly do you want to integrate? How important is that integration? Um, uh, how, how important is that integration speed to you? You know, are you an, are you a private equity or uh, you know, do you need a quick exit? Do you buy, build, and exit? Is is bundling important to you? In other words, putting multiple entities together to build up a high turnover and high uh, EBITDA uh, uh, numbers because you obviously get higher multiples. So PMI strategy is massively complex and, and this course will be, right, be running weekly every single week for the next year. So it's at least 50 <coughs> modules in my PMI course of an yeah. hour long each. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of that stuff. Um, and Ross, you're welcome to join um, on Friday. But yes, there's a ton of stuff out there. But David, thank yeah. you very much for, for the, just um, you know the HR that you mentioned. One of the things that we've used in the past to, in terms of you mentioned people, is there's a there's some software uh, by a company called Thomas International that does uh, HR. That they're it, it's evaluating sort of skill sets, um, and it's very good for you could bolt it, you evaluate individuals. And you can also evaluate management teams in terms of, uh, it's basically like disk analysis, drive, um, influence, steadiness, and compliance. And, and, and that, that's, a, especially in the agency world, especially in people businesses, that, that can be quite powerful. And I could see that being, you know, used by an acquiring company in uh, post-merger integration. So it's one, one example. Yeah. I, I mean, people use, um, Colby, uh, I'm not, yeah. not sure if you heard of Colby. They use the Clifton Strengths Finder, um, where there's more of a focus on on people's strengths as opposed to their weaknesses. Mm. Um, it's also building the correct sort of management structures that are appropriate. Not you know, a, a lot of management structures could be legacy structures that this is the way we've always done it. I think you mentioned that earlier on. This is the way we do it around here. That we don't do it any other way. You know, how do you start changing that? I mean, PMI, in my mind, a lot of it is to do with change management. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be part of sort of one of the big Unilever uh, projects, especially HR that, I mean, that moved the entire HR across to, I mean, this was years ago uh, to PwC. Now they've, un they've unwound that lots again. But I mean, there's a ton of things that happen in the PMI space. But as a, as, like I said, there is a, I'm going to be putting out some proper training course around that. We do have office hours every Friday morning at 9 a.m., 11 uh, until 12 every Friday. We, we, we go through the, it's proper theory, okay? It's theory, it's examples. It's like a proper training course, and it's going to be going on for the next year, at least 50 hours worth of training. 
Uh, so in, you know, you're welcome to join there, Ross, if you want. But um, David, coming back to you, I just want to say absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been an amazing conversation from someone that we haven't had quite this type of uh, profile person on our, on our show before. And I want to thank you for sharing um, all your thoughts and ideas and your philosophy. And also, I mean, you're quite an established company, 10, 11 years. You, you know, you, you're founder, owner, you run a people business. You, you help sell people businesses. You understand it quite deeply. And I certainly hope that, that, uh, that people out there realize it. And if they, if they do want to, if they do want to sell their business, that they know who to come and come and talk to. So that's, that's great. Um, David, any last thoughts, last few golden nuggets, a few things you want to share? No, I mean, I think the only thing, you know, this, this, this subject is about post-merger integration. And, and I think the whole, uh, I think that the thing there that to take from this from, from me is that if you get the deal right pre-merger, the post-merger will be a lot easier. Um, I say post-merger is very important as well, but, but focus on getting the pre-merger stuff right get those the chemistry the culture the business proposition right and uh all will follow yeah it's what uh the the the, car, the carpenter's law isn't it they say measure twice cut once <laughs> something like that for sure for sure yeah yeah um david thank you has absolutely wonderful uh to have you on the show and um, we live stream which is which you'll see all over in all different uh, social uh, um outlets or, or platforms as they call it uh, in the next few weeks your podcast will be live on our on our podcast channel 100 days and beyond uh, anybody interested please go to 100daysandbeyond.com uh, you'll find that uh, there's a website there the bunch of uh, episodes already loaded we're progressively uh, loading a whole lot more i think we've done 30 odd episodes already uh, and we try and do at least one, two, or three episodes a week at this stage. So please join us, whoever's joined us today. Uh, join us again on the on the next one. Thank you, David. Uh, well, thank you very much. Well. It's been a real pleasure to meet you, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Much appreciated. And get in we touch. Uh, feel free to get in touch. All the best to you. Well, bye, David. Stay, stay on the line, and I just want to say goodbye. Thank you. Just to stay on the line. All right. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us for another episode of 100 Days and Beyond, the podcast that focuses on the ins and outs and the roundabouts of the world of uh, post-merger integrations or post-acquisition integrations, which is a complex world. It's a world um, that is fascinating as well as daunting. It is one that where you learn massive amounts about yourself, about people, and about the way the world works. And I think it's it's an area that's that's um, I still think untapped, and I still think that there's a lot more we can do to be helping people out there get more value out of their businesses, get more value out of their hard work and effort, because we spend a third at least of our lives at work and building businesses and growing and developing at in our careers. We might as well do it and do it well. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me. And look forward to seeing you on the, or listening to you, <laughs> that you listen to me on the next podcast or episode. Thank you very much and all the best. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no obligation meeting with us. 
During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.